0: This is Mindframe, a podcast of mind-bending science fiction. As always, I am your host and the author of Mindframe, David Moten. And with me is Brent Van Tassel, my partner in crime and producer Extraordinaire. Um, He is one of the founders of the Podbelly Podcast Network, which you can find at Podbelly.com, and we are a Podbelly original series. Um, So go to Podbelly.com to check out some great shows, um, etc., and you will not be disappointed. We want to thank our listeners. Uh, we've been on on the charts in various populations around the world. We most notably, we're looking at you, Australia. Um, we were up really high on the sci-fi charts in Australia. So we want to give a special shout out to our Australian listeners who have been making a difference. Uh, keep spreading the word of Mindframe. Um, It goes uh, way, way better than it could if we throw money at social media post boosts and so forth. So if you like it, share it, uh, let people know. It's a great way to help build the podcast. Another way to help the podcast keep going is to become a patron. If you go to patreon.com slash mindframe podcast for as little as $1, you can become a patron level that gets all of the bonus sit down episodes where myself, Zach Smith, and uh, Brent, uh, go and talk about every single chapter as they're going. So if you really like the show, um, for just a dollar a month, you suddenly have a, an episode where we sit down and talk about the the questions, the answers, the mysteries, the solutions, the technology, the writing techniques. Sometimes we go into some nerdy sci-fi cul-de-sacs, but if you like all of that stuff, it's really a completely separate podcast about this podcast and interweaving with this podcast. So go to podbelly.com or go to patreon.com, sorry, uh, backslash mindframe podcast, and you'll be able to find um your patron options uh, and support us there. So we are about to embark upon the next level of the story of uh, Mariel Barbeau. The last time we saw her, she was in the hotel called the Old Dame and she was with the Alpha and she was with Teddy. They had decided that she needed to uh, put on a bit of a ritual to put Guillermo behind her. And at the end of the chapter, the Alpha did his magic and made it so that Teddy and Barbeau would remember what had really happened in the past and completely break from their mind frames. Now that that's happened and we've already seen Teddy's background, we start to see some of the first memories that Barbeau is able to access now that her memory engrams are falling apart. And that is where this chapter begins. I hope you enjoy it. Chapter 29, Mariel Barbeau, 2140. Barbeau remembered she had been under a computer-controlled thrust, but she could only perceive it as a fall. Her armored spacesuit was in sync with the other two, so they matched speed and trajectory. She didn't know how fast they were going, but it wasn't so fast that it made her body hurt. As for the trajectory, so far it was a straight line, and that line pointed toward the Eleanor Gray. That ship was the operational objective. For Barbeau, it meant a new home, a framing chamber to live in as an undercover operative. For the rest of the crew, it meant kidnapping Josephine Wu, the only survivor of the attack on the ship. The gray hung between them and the comet Trujillo Williams, which now glowed to life and started to shed ice and gases. Barbeau's animal brain could only perceive it all in one particular way. She wasn't flying through space towards something, she was falling down onto something. The gray was getting bigger as she got closer and the thrust felt more like gravity than Gs of force. Barbeau had told Captain Bess that this was how her brain managed spacewalks. She always saw up and down and thrust always made her feel like she was falling. Bess had told her it was a good thing, saying, "'Girl, I know a lot of Earthlings who go extra vehicle "'and their middle ears just freak the fuck out. The reptile in him is just scrambling to find a sky and a ground, panic sets in, and they're useless without automated flight suits. Your brain has a fake gravity well built in. You make one up where there isn't one. You see a down where there's only outer space. Maybe that's why they picked you for this crazy-ass mission. You seem hardwired to be able to fool yourself about the nature of reality. Perhaps Captain Bess was right. Because Barbeau had never panicked in space, but she always felt like she was trapped in a gravity well that didn't exist. Her helmets heads up display showed a glowing emerald circle. It was a map basically that showed dots on different scales and a small arrow pointing toward their destination. That flat green circle flashed two times and turned into an orange colored sphere. The green destination arrow was still there, but a more somber orange arrow also appeared pointing in a direction that she would consider down and to her left. Bearings and speed populated beside the sphere. The combat network for the Apple of Discord had just detected a collision warning and the sphere was pointing to the danger. Something was flying through space in their general direction and any sort of physical contact would be disastrous for the ship and complete annihilation for someone doing an extravehicular activity. Fry, the German member of the team, was the first person to address this imminent threat. He said, We need a what's what, Collis, come on. Collis returned, Keep your pants on, Fry. I'd have already shouted it out if I knew about it. I told you that before you went EVA. Fry said, Maybe a heads up before our shitty little suits notice something. We don't need surprises out here. We need confidence. Sorry to be a little nervous while blindly flying through the oncoming debris of a space battle coupled with a comet shedding its payload. Collis, the engineer for the Apple of Discord, said, Hey man, I'm with you on the danger vibe, but there is no before here. The combat network tells your helmet about this shit the same time it tells my monitor. It's all in the orange, so nothing is likely to squash you or pop you just yet. As Collis said this, the sphere turned a blood red, indicating imminent danger. Captain Bess came on. Her voice had lost its cool. God damn it, Collis, what did I tell you about saying dumb shit that curses our mission? Collis, still filled with calm, said, As I recall, Captain, you said some crazy, non-scientific voodoo shit? My words don't cause comet debris to- Shut the fuck up, Fry said. Have the system generate a vector. I'm going to fire an SOA at this thing. I'm starting to get a visual, so it's damned close. Or damn big, Bess said. Working. Barbeau looked in the direction that the sphere indicated and at first there wasn't anything to see. Then she saw one star in the field double in brightness, and triple. Something reflective was heading in their direction. It couldn't be battle debris this far out yet, so that meant something from the comet. And heading in this errant direction, it meant something that was explosively released from the surface as it heated and something sublimated. The real threat wasn't direct impact of the item they could see, It was a thousand pellets and bullets of rock and ice shredding them. She looked at the comet, and the vast majority of shed was flowing directly behind it, leaving that tail you'd watch from a telescope. She saw nothing else heading their direction. Farther out from the comet was the battle. There she saw the plume of several rockets firing and puffs of flak coming out from ships. Out here in the void of space, it looked like fireworks or an illuminated drone show. Almost beautiful if every spark of light she saw wasn't the deadly artifact of their deviant fleet clashing with the 6th Fleet of the World Navy. The lights suddenly got more intense as beams and bursts spawned from the 6th Fleet in a choreographed wave. Barbeau audibly gasped at the violence. It's official, Captain Best said into the channel. We no longer have the element of surprise. Y'all need to hurry. The fleet just did its first coordinated attack. They have ray guns and everything, not very sportsmanlike. This means we have exactly 12 minutes until whatever is left of our fleet makes a run for it. Fry, I'm sending you the attack vector for your SOA. Look alive. Callus, are we ready to use the madness drive to make a jump when we have your new passenger on board? I hate that fucking thing, was his only response. Barbeau watched Fry ahead of her. His suit jets made it hard to look directly at him, so she adjusted the visor and it dimmed where needed. He was pulling something out of one of many satchels connected to his suit. It was an orb, slightly larger than a grapefruit. It looked clear but alive with specks of light. He slid it into a small saddle on his bicep and worked on his wrist computer. She looked down toward the item that was glowing in brightness and she could see a physical shape now. A chunk of ice, maybe the size of a small automobile, twisting wildly. If this thing passed within a few hundred yards of them, the danger of suit breaches, even through the armor, was very real. Fry said, Vector entered, SOA flying in three, two, one. He tossed it a few feet in front of him and it took on its own thrust. A slight glow of white pushed out behind it. It flew directly toward the ice. I would advise not looking at that anymore, you know, for your retinas. Barbeau looked back at the gray, and it was surprisingly large all of a sudden. They were moving faster than she thought. She had been told her whole life that the ship was called a razor class ship because it was shaped like an old 20th century electric razor. She couldn't picture a razor that was elongated and black with three round engines thrumming off the back, but there it was. There was a large flash of light off toward the ice chunk. It died down within seconds and she looked where the light once was. There wasn't much to see over there and the ice itself was gone. She switched to a thermal view and there was a massive orb of heat. It should have been eaten by the nothing of space instantly, but heat was still being generated by that orb. She zoomed in. The ice had flown into that ball of heat and the tail left behind it was now flying into it as well. Little puffs of thermal color variants were appearing as the small ice cube and micrometeors were melted. That must create quite a fireball inside an atmosphere. Touchdown in 30, Fry said. The red sphere in the HUD turned back to green and then flattened from an active sphere to a passive circle. Whatever debris passing their way was no longer a threat. At least for now. Barbeau felt the reverse burn of her suit as it slowed her. Eventually, she felt like she was purely on the float and was gracefully closing in on the ship's hull. She could no longer see the Eleanor Gray as a whole ship, just a black hull extending in all directions. A few more puffs of landing jets, then her HUD indicated that the mag boots were active and they were clinging to the hull. Her brain was very happy at finally having a ground and a sky. Plus, she could no longer see the battle or the comet, so space was suddenly the yawn of eternal boredom, just as she preferred. Fry took the lead and fiddled with the computers on his suit's arms. According to the plan, he'd be scanning the hatch to see how to best breach it. He was walking ahead of Barbeau. The flare of suit jets dimmed as the third and final member of their boarding party, Master Noah Feng, landed beside her. He was a strange and pensive man. He spoke seldom, and his words always carried heft. She thought he was constantly reading her mind, but Captain Bess said that was bullshit. As Feng landed, it took him a second to orient himself. Eventually, he looked at Barbeau and gave a plaintive smile and a thickly suited thumbs up. They all had seemingly impossible roles to play. Fry was to handle all of the security measures of the Eleanor Gray and hack her unhackable systems. Fang was supposed to be able to break into the framing chamber and pacify the attendant droids. While Barbeau was supposed to live there from now on and fool the entire world Navy and herself into thinking she was really Josephine Wu. Ultimately, Fang would make Wu's attendance droids become Barbeau's attendants. Then the attendants would finish the rewriting of her personality with memory engrams for this mission. The attendants had lived everything the real Josephine Wu had, and Fang would give them instructions to load that frame into Barbeau. It was experimental and hadn't been done before, but confidence was high. It seemed like an extreme thing to do, becoming another person, But if it helped her get revenge on Captain William Campana for murdering her best friend Darcy, it would be worth any sacrifice. Fry got them through the outer hatch so quickly that Barbeau had to wonder if it was even locked down. But it had to be. The ship was under attack, certainly at battle stations, so all exteriors would go to their maximum security settings to help repel borders. She even wondered if the German already had an access code, but the security protocol said they'd all be reset during battle stations. Only the bridge crew could gain access at that point, and even that access would have relied on biosignatures, not any sort of a code. Apparently, the German was just that damn good. Inside the hatch was a nicely appointed, if small, room. It was meant to be the first place a guest or possibly a dignitary would step if boarding the ship. It worked just as well for deviant pirates. Once inside, Barbeau told her sensors to sense, And a moment later, Callis sounded in on the comms. Atmo is standard, no toxins, but it will be smoky. A lot of particulates, nothing hazardous, he said nonchalantly. Barbeau knew that those particulates were some of the burning carbon that was once a healthy crew only minutes ago. Hopefully, some of those particulates were the ash of that son-of-a-bitch Bill Campana, the grinder of Ganymede. Fry retracted his helmet and made a remarkably quick adjustment to his armored suit, condensing and removing the upper torso. He slung the bulky appendage to an odd rig on his butt and thighs. He wore no shirt, and his skin was alive with pixels, images, glyphs, and code. She had never seen a skinterface skin as extensive or active as his. It couldn't have been healthy. She also saw that he had small ports in his arm once he started to hardwire a small computational device into himself. Her small team did just as they practiced in the bizarre dreams that Master Fang would bring them into at night with his strange psychic gifts. They had done this raid dozens of times a night until the ship's layout was known intimately. Barbeau realized Fang and Fry had deactivated their helmets, so she did the same it collapsed in on itself against the back of her neck. During the practice runs, Feng once asked why they didn't just leave the helmets on, and Fry said that the sound of your own breath and heartbeat bounced around inside the helmets. The sound was known to make people get into a feedback loop and start to panic at their own biological systems. What the fuck are you waiting for? Fry asked the room as he finished wiring the device into his arm. I paused, that means I should be behind both of you by now because, you know, you kept moving. Ten minutes, he said, spitting the time frame with distaste. Master Feng smiled. The smile said, Why are you so angry all the time, my friend? It was a question he had asked Fry at least twice a day on the flight out here. The response ranged from silence to a simple fuck you. One time after a particularly nasty training run, Fry tossed his coffee in Fang's face and walked away. As always, all Fang did was smile. Callus was right about the air. The smell of burnt and burning meat filled the halls as did smoke from what had to be dozens of small fires all around the ship. The new deviant weapon was said to only light living things on fire. What a horror show. But they were told small flames would pop up everywhere based on the burning fat of the human candle. The Eleanor Gray's fire suppression certainly handled all of them in seconds. Barbeau took the lead at a rapid clip. She went up the main hall, took a right, then followed the left curve of the ship. She got to the hatch and ladder that led up a level, a simple ancient technology that was much quicker than waiting for an elevator. There, she stopped for a moment. She was waiting for Fry to come and hack the hatch, but she tried to turn the door wheel, which Captain Best called a dog, and it actually turned and opened. She climbed up. The corridor above was even smokier, the air looking a little bit dense as the scrubbers tried to clean things up. Fry scooted up the hatch and ran past her. She picked up her pace and ran to catch up. The decking was stained with giant char spots, and at times her feet slipped in some aspect of the human remains that were greasy. Fry got to the bridge door and set two cables tipped with magnets against the hull near the control panel. She saw his skin come alive with data. He closed his eyes and his arms and face were a flowing system of symbols and code. At one point, a few seconds in, the code twisted itself into double helixes and he pursed his lips and bent his head down. He was concentrating to make this happen. It took less than a minute But when the hatch lit green, there was blood coming out of Fry's nose. When he opened his eyes, one of them was suddenly a slight green color instead of that pure German blue. Patches of his hair were now distinctly darker. The ubiquitous skinterface that nearly every human being used worked by hacking the human gene to make it a living computer and monitor. Whatever the skinterface did to manipulate the genetics of the human dermis was ramped up a thousandfold with Fry. It seemed his entire body was covered in the living computer, not just his forearms. In the training runs they did, his side effects included nausea, skin blemishes, and unconsciousness. They never made such radical cosmetic changes. Go, Fry screamed at them before a litany of German curse words that sounded amazingly appropriate. Nine minutes, Captain Best said over the comms. It came out like a mother nagging a child to be ready for the school bus. They walked onto the combat information center and it was alive with smoke and ghosts. The screen was tracking the battle and the comet. Master Fang rounded the corner back to the framing suite and Barbeau noticed all the burnt human stain on the floor. The entire crew was here moments ago. Captain Guillermo Campana was one of those scorch marks. She looked at what she assumed was his. She didn't know how she'd feel while seeing his remains. Relief? Happiness? Shock? Guilt? She felt none of those things, but rather a slight twitch of panic. Because there, walking through this char, were footprints. She looked around at the ground and realized someone, maybe more than one person, had been walking around in here after the weapon hit the ship. Fry shook her arm, yelling, I said, are you ready to strip out of the armor? Does the cat have your goddamn tongue, woman? Footprints, Barbo said, as she started to take off her spacesuit. Someone's alive. Over the comms, Callis said, Not possible, love. The big bad killed everybody. Fry said, Your faith in their technology will be your undoing, Callis. She's right. Someone survived. Uh, three different sets of bootprints." Do you need me at the framing chamber, Fang? Doubtful, the man said from out of sight. But I do need Mariel. Coming, she said. She was out of the armored suit and down to the framer robes she wore underneath. She was careful not to step in the burn marks since the cloth slippers would probably get no traction on the greasy stains. She left the suit where it was and moved quickly. Fry started to get her space armor ready for its next inhabitant, who would be putting it on any minute now. She walked to the framing suite and saw that the lances and sabers of marines were sitting on burn marks up the hallway. You're sure she survived this? Barbo asked. I'm sure of what I was told to expect. I'm sure of the person who told me, and I'm sure the future is a roll of the dice. I'm sure of nothing more. They stood in front of the framing chamber. Though the metal walls of the ship were splattered with boiled blood and carbonized bodies, the eerie pure white of the chamber was untouched by stain. Feng placed his hand in a very specific spot on the chamber. A tone emanated from it. Josephine Wu, this is Master Noah Feng. I'm a courier for the Alpha Messenger. You remember meeting me. I do, a woman's voice filled the air from no discernible speaker. There has been a deviant attack. We need to get you out of the framing chamber to come with us to the Alpha's flagship, the Tehachapi. Please initiate autumn tortoise meditation technique. I will, the woman said. I... An attack? At the hotel, of fire, Guillermo! She was starting to get hysterical from whatever she thought she saw inside the chamber. Feng repeated, Please initiate autumn tortoise meditation technique. Five minutes, Callis said. You are officially short-timing it. Barbo stood behind Fang for several tense minutes, but the countdown on the back of her hand promised it was only less than 30 seconds. But there was a different ping from the chamber. The lights changed color, and a seam appeared in the seamless. The door slid open. A beautiful woman, half Chinese, half Caucasian, stood in her black robes. Her attendants floated above her. As Barbo assessed them, realizing they would be hers in a matter of seconds, She saw them change attitude. Their backs suddenly bristled, and the carapace grew deadly spikes and razors. They were reacting to danger. Barbeau assumed that they realized this was a kidnapping and were now going to kill her and Fang. A second later, there was gunfire around the corner back in the CIC. Fry hissed into the channel, Three of them. I can take them, but I may have to take myself in the process. The casual way he breached the topic of using his own suicide as a tactic was disturbingly reassuring. The floating attendant droids touched nose to nose and then backed up from each other. There was now a very thin cable suspended between them. They flew past Barbeau incredibly quickly, spinning from each other like a Bolo, a massive set of razor sharp androids spinning with the cable as a center point. A man in naval colors ran into the framing suite, just as Fry was screaming, One got past me! The crew member entered the hall, and before he could even raise his gun, the attendants flew past him. Barbeau expected they would wrap him in the connecting cable and maybe slingshot around him until one of them impaled him with their bodies. But it was worse than that. They flew straight through him, the cable cutting him in half through the torso. They did so at a 45 degree angle so one of them could hit his weapon in hand and completely grind both of them to spare parts. Fry screamed in German, and a man and woman screamed in common. Fry's scream was one of alarm. The naval personnel's scream was the last scream they would ever issue. In less than 10 seconds, the attendants were floating back up the hall into the framing chamber. They dripped blood from their shells and one had a disturbing amount of long black hair clogging up space between two of the chitons that were retreating and losing their menace. When the spikes retreated into the body far enough, the hair and a bit of scalp wetly flopped to the floor. Porthos? Josephine Wu asked, utterly confused. Fang said a series of code words to both the attendants and the framing chamber. The dripping things moved to float above Mariel's head. As she walked into the chamber, Josephine gave her a strong embrace. They hugged until Captain Best said, Four minutes, you are out of time. Evacuate, evacuate. Barbeau heard a few patters of blood on cloth, but didn't know if it was landing on her or Josephine. Josephine was in a daze, her eyes trying to sort through whatever reality she saw inside the chamber and the hell of a dead ship. Fang put his hands on Josephine's temples and did a quick meditation that seemed to help her find herself. The doors to the chamber started to slide shut. Master Fang gave Barbeau a bow and said, Your sacrifice honors us. Just get the sons of bitches, Barbeau said, as the framing chamber sealed shut. She sat on the cot, alone. The attendants had never scared her before, though that was a visceral reaction to many people. But now she saw them in a different light. They had just slaughtered those three people. She always assumed it would be lightning bolts or some sort of a distance weapon, not brutal melee. One of them floated down in front of her, its thousand black fingers writhing as it exposed its belly. Blood fell from its back onto the deck. The other attendant started to clean up the blood from the floor. They were both issuing a soothing sound and Mariel felt suddenly and horribly sad for no reason she could discern. Grief was starting to well in her heart. This must be it. The memory engrams were being activated by the droids. The one floated close enough that its myriad of black rubbery fingers were touching her face. They licked her out of pity as she cried and they breathed the smell of reassuring dog breath into her face. The fireman had put a blanket on her back to protect her from the cold night air up on the mountain. The burning wing of the old dame was no longer on fire. What she thought was dripping blood turned out to be water as it fell through the burnt holes in the eaves that yawned like black toothless mouths in the dismal night. One attendant droid was cleaning up the floor by taking long drinks of water. Muffet was thirsty and didn't seem to care that the water was muddy pools on the ground due to the runoff from the fire hoses. Porthos continued to give Josephine kisses. She wept, and the firemen gave her space. The love of her life. Her husband Guillermo had just burned to death in a fire. She heard him trapped and screaming. She heard the cough, and then the silence, and then the roar of flame and collapse of wood. Some receding part of herself was glad for it, Guillermo's death. How? That was the worst thought she could possibly imagine. The man was a saint, would never hurt anyone, Except Darcy, on Ganymede, and all those people. Children. He was such a good man. Philanthropic. Guilt flowed over her as the husband she loved was dislodged from the world. Any terrible thought of revenge morphed to sorrow. The dogs nestled in close to her. She realized she'd been holding her cell phone and knew she had to call someone, Uncle Alfie maybe, to tell them Guillermo was dead. She couldn't even form the words. She let grief pour from her soul, enough grief for two people, as the engram settled in. Josephine Wu was forever, and irrevocably a grieving widow, lost in the haunted halls of the old dame. So now, Barbeau is Josephine, even though... Barbeau isn't Josephine, but she finally is Josephine for the first time, even though that happened a long time ago, and life is normal in Mindframe. I hope you're still enjoying the show. I hope you're still enjoying the narratives. As always, remember, if you like my writing, you can track down 181 Pine by going to Mindframe Podcast and then going to the... The shop, we've got a section on books there that have uh, my fiction and it also has the fiction of Zach Smith who does the sit down episodes with us as well as some really cool merchandise. If you're liking the show and you wanna represent a a mind frame coffee mug in the office or on your Zoom screen or whatever, um, a lot of stuff is on there. So check it out, good way to support the show um, as is uh, a like and a promotion on social networks such as Facebook and if you wanna catch us on Facebook, We are at Mindframe Podcast. If you want to reach out to us and interact on Twitter, at Twitter we are Mindframe Podcast. And on Instagram we are The Mindframe Podcast. Um, As always, we are a member of the Podbelly Network and we like to shout out our cousins in uh, Podbelly land. uh, One of which is uh, At Least There's Coffee. I recently did a guest spot on At Least There's Coffee. And we talk about a subject near and dear to my heart, but I don't want to spoil it here because I think this might drop before theirs does. But in the next week or two, you should see me on an episode of At Least There's Coffee uh, being casual and having a couple of laughs. And you can also check out Paranormal Punchers, which is another great uh, fair that you can find on Podbelly. So as always, thank you for listening. We will see you again soon. And remember, the Lariat is closing.